From member-supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash. And yes, I have a bit of a cold. But after talking about the election for more than two months, I have to catch you up on the results. Because Tuesday was a pivotal night in Colorado. It wasn't a blue wave. It was a blue avalanche. Democrats had the night in Colorado that they wish they had across the country. The party completely dominated. Colorado in this country sent a clear message today. Democrats won every statewide office for treasurer, for secretary of state, for attorney general. Republicans had good turnout, but the Dems had record turnout. The unaffiliated had record turnout. And of course, for governor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jared Polis, the next governor of Colorado. What an incredible night. Moments ago, uh, Walker Stapleton called. They also won both legislative chambers, growing their majority in the state house and taking over the state senate. That means Democrats have complete control of Colorado state government for the first time since 1936. This is New Deal levels of control. The avalanche was so strong that some argue it just washed away Colorado's status as a purple state. I disagree. I think we're still going to be purple. When you look at how many independent voters lean conservative and that the registration between Democrats and Republicans is still very close, this election I think is more of a blunt comment, a very direct comment on the Trump presidency. And I think a lot you had some that decided to let's stay away. Let's stay away. I knew if the race was nationalized as a referendum on the president. Mike Kaufman. That I simply could not win this race. Too bad, Mike. So for this episode of Purplish, we're going to talk about why Democrats so thoroughly dominated in Colorado and what that says about the state's political identity. And to help me do that, I have uh, three people here with me from CPR. Grace Hood, you're our energy environment reporter. That's right. Uh, ben Marcus, our business reporter. And I'm going to bring the business. And Megan Verlee, my boss and Colorado Public Radio's public affairs editor. Great to be here. All right. So given the election results in Colorado, here's the first thing I'm curious about. What do you guys think we should name this episode? Big money. Big money. You think that's the story of the race? All right, Ben. I think that's a good contender since more than $200 million was spent on the election. I like the suburbs because so much focus was on races in the suburban areas and they split from some of the more progressive areas of the state, too. So I think there's a lot of interesting stories to mine in that. And I'm going for watch out Democrats. And I'm not sure if that has a colon. So it's like, watch out Democrats because they control <laughs> everything or watch out comma Democrats because the last time they were in this situation, it didn't last long. Wow. You just made a grammar joke on the radio. This is why you don't let me be on your podcast. <laughs> All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contend with blue avalanche, you know, like blue wave, but just it's localized here to Colorado. I think that is the story of this race. And, and let's jump into that big question. Why do you guys think uh, Democrats so thoroughly won this time around. And what do you guys think that means going forward? I think the next couple of years and 2020 are going to be really telling on that. You know, obviously my little title on Watch Out Democrats. The last time Democrats had the trifecta at the state house and could run the bills they wanted 
voters did not react uh, super positively to that. And, and two years later, they returned a Republican majority to the state Senate. That's right. And when you look at, uh, for example, just look at Polis, how votes broke down. I mean, you see so many rural counties still staying very red. And so I think uh, we also saw uh, back when we had the trifecta a couple years ago, there was really a backlash in rural Colorado. And we might see that again. And just to be clear, when we say trifecta, we're just talking about how the state house, the state senate, and the governor's mansion will all be controlled by Democrats. Ben, what do you think? Is uh, is Colorado a blue state now? I think maybe if this election is a referendum on President Trump, I don't think Colorado's ever been Trump country. I think that the suburbs are uh, educated, affluent, and they just never have really taken to him. And so it may be more about Trump than it is about huge numbers of Democrats finally entering the state of Colorado and permanently turning it blue. So I think maybe that's where Megan's title is perfect. Mm -hmm. And Grace, I want to ask you about that, right? Because we talk about how Democrats won all these offices, but some of the more progressive initiatives failed, right? Especially when you look at ones that required big economic changes in the case of transportation, education. Voters did not have an appetite for that. What was interesting, though, was the appetite for local tax increases. Mm. You saw fire protection districts getting more money, more money for broadband, more money coming through recreational marijuana taxes that were local. So that, to me, is kind of counterintuitive, surprising. That matches Colorado's history, though, because local tax measures have been extremely successful in the state. I don't know what the success rate is, but it's something like 75, 80 percent. And because it's a specific thing, it's a tax that you're going to pay and you're going to get some specific benefit out of. Statewide taxes have never been successful here. And I want to go back to actually the very first episode of Purplish, where we talked about direct democracy in Colorado and, and the initiative process. And Obviously, I've only been around for 10 of the 100 or so years that we have had this tool. But my experience in that time is that Colorado voters seem to be increasingly leery of making complex, especially fiscal policy at the ballot box. It seems like when voters do something dramatic, it's something fairly understandable, like we're going to legalize marijuana. That may be dramatic, but it's simple. Or we're going to legalize aid in dying. It's sort of more social issues and sort of more simple to understand issues. Absolutely. I covered Amendment 74, which has to do with taking. So that's the idea that if a government takes an action and your property is devalued, uh, you can go to court and get compensation. And I just saw the shadow of Tabor hanging over that debate. And to the extent that there was a lot of discussion about how wide sweeping it was. We don't understand all the implications. So there's kind of that precautionary principle, I think, that factored into some voters. Complexity is an interesting issue because I've talked to political consultants trying to figure out why the transportation tax failed. And it may be you got two different measures on the ballot dealing with transportation. It's just very confusing to voters. And clarity, they say, is so important because some people, the only information they have about this is what they're reading in front of them. And it doesn't make any sense. And so the default in those cases can be no. And I think we absolutely do have to talk about Tabor in the context of this election. The ghost of Doug Bruce, and he's still alive. He's down in Colorado Springs or he's in a ruckus. But it is still definitely a huge factor when it comes to ballot initiatives. Ben, this is something I know you paid a lot of attention to because you wrote a whole biography, basically, podcast biography of Douglas Bruce called The Tax Ban. How did Tabor play a role in this last election? 
So my wife and I sat down to vote, and she reads that first line of these tax questions, how shall state taxes be raised by $1.6 billion annually uh, in the case of the education tax? It's just a lot of zeros, right? And Doug Bruce made sure in the Tabor Amendment that that's how tax questions are presented to voters, to put the dollar amount in the first question. And I think that that's always going to scare people away. And as dollars, as the inflation grows, those dollar amounts are only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I think what we're kind of getting at here is that when you get into the ballot initiatives, this whole debate about red wave and blue wave and are things Republican and Democrat, it quickly gets kind of muddy and unclear if party politics and party identity and partisanship is really playing a role. And the one that I really want to ask about with regards to that is Proposition 112. This is the 2,500-foot setback for new oil and gas drilling. Grace, I know this is something you paid so much attention to. Did 112 break down on party lines? Did it break down on party lines? Absolutely not. And I have covered so many local bans on oil and gas from back to 2012, Longmont, Fort Collins, uh, Broomfield, and the, all those passed. I will tell you when the results were posted at 7.05 or whatever, I seriously had no idea mm-hmm. how votes were going to break down. And the way we saw them break down is really that even though Democrats overwhelmingly got support in all the different seats in the state house. Proposition 112 did not pass, which you think it's an environmental issue, but we did not see Democrats who seem to dominate all these other seats and the two state houses really show up in mass support for 112. 112 is interesting because the most liberal places of Colorado voted for that. Uh, Aspen, Telluride, Denver, and Boulder. But outside of that, it did not have broad-based support in the suburbs or in northern Colorado, like Larimer County, which can be um, sometimes liberal. The places that are affected by fracking. Well, yeah, and that's my theory. This was really the first time the state had to weigh in on oil and gas development. And the majority of the state doesn't really understand how it works. They've maybe heard about fracking, but they don't understand how it's part of this multi-step oil and gas extraction process. And I wonder to what extent the lack of knowledge on that factored into votes. Because when I see uh, oil and gas come into communities, you see a pretty wide sweeping group of residents who act against that because they don't want a major industrial process next to their homes. So if it's not in your backyard, you may not understand it. So why did, what does El Paso County know about fracking? What does Pueblo know well, about fracking? I actually disagree with you there, because if you looked at, at um, Weld County, where homeowners should know more than anyone else about this process, it was overwhelmingly against it. I think if you're in a community where you're having this go on, the folks who live near the wells may become quite upset, but the folks who see the money going into the schools and the other parts of of your government and start having friends working in the industry, it can look really different. And I think that's where you get into how the debate was framed. It was framed health and safety versus jobs and who is predominantly impacted the most by if 112 would have passed, it's Weld County. There are thousands of jobs there. A lot of workers uh, you know, live and work in Weld County. So tax revenue. Yeah. That I got to say, though, sense. I live in Denver and I was surprised by how many no on 112 signs I saw in my very deep blue neighborhood, which also reminds you there are plenty of folks in Denver in law offices and business offices who also draw a paycheck from this industry. I was at the no on 112 uh, election night party and I saw a woman who had taken all the no on Prop 112 
like signs and she made a cape out of oh it. It was gosh. walking around. She had a, like a top hat and a cape. And she said she made it like a month earlier. And it was like kind of part of her campaign strategy. Oh, wow. I think the money made a difference in that campaign just as well. They were how much. Yeah, tens of millions versus under $1 million for environmental groups. And that's where, you know, when I talked about those having no idea what way election results were going to go at 7.05 on election night, I in the back of my mind, I just had that there was so much spending and it was so lopsided. Boy, that's just really hard to beat. There is one point that maybe just I care about in this room, but <laughs> I thought it was fascinating that that debate did break down health and safety versus jobs. This is about the economy or about whether you want an oil and gas well in your backyard. We did not see anybody, not the 112 people, not the people against 112 and 474, make this about climate change. You know who we did see make it about climate change was national media. That was the Washington Post, the New York Times. They Mm -hmm. were doing roundups of climate change Uh, ballot issues. But I think because we're in Colorado, I mean, think about the Firestone home explosion where two people died. People aren't thinking at an intellectual level. They're thinking more about explosions, uh, air quality. All right. So let's let's move on from 112 and 74, which I think is fascinating and we could talk about for another hour. But uh, this, as you noted, Ben, was a race that really focused on the suburbs. Why are the suburbs so important to this race? Because despite all of the voters in Denver and Boulder, like it's not enough to move progressive issues, right? You need to bring the suburbs along with you if you're on the liberal side. If you're on the Republican side, you need to bring the suburbs along with you as well. And so you see when you look at the voting patterns in the suburbs around Denver, it's very mixed. It's a lot of red and it's a lot of blue. And it's maybe it's getting bluer, but there's still a lot of red in there as well. So those districts can go one way or the other. And so you have to move those. If you don't move those, you're not going to win. Well, and I think what this election showed, again, to go into that idea of how much was this a national protest vote against the president and how much was this a Colorado-based vote, our suburbs, as you mentioned, are demographically not friendly territory to the president, and they went very blue on pretty much every box they could check. So not just the governor's race, but races where they probably did not have a ton of information about the candidate, state treasurer, secretary of state. These are races where political scientists look at those results to try and guess kind of partisan leanings and, and how much of a, an election was about partisanship. Voters in Denver's suburbs seem to really want to send a message about how they feel about the parties right now. And possibly that has a lot more to do with the parties nationally than the parties locally. And and I think where we probably saw that uh, in the most striking way was with uh, U.S. Representative Mike Kaufman, the Republican who represents Congressional District 6, which covers large parts of Aurora. I was at the Republican Party on election night when he gave his speech. And this is what he said about President Trump with regards to the race. I knew that my only hope of winning was to localize the race, and that if the race was nationalized as a referendum on the president, that I simply could not win this race. Megan, do you think that Trump was an anchor on Kaufman? Oh, absolutely. I mean, all you have to do is look at his results in 2016 when he won that district by, I think, about nine points. Kaufman hasn't really done anything differently policy-wise in two years. He's still backing DACA. He still was doing uh, bills around veterans. Uh, He ran a lot of stuff that was very popular in very specific immigrant communities like the uh, Ethiopians and the South Asian communities. 
And he was very, very vocally opposed to a lot of the president's policies. But at the end of the day, you have Jason Crow, his opponent, the now the congressman-elect, who was making a very strong sell of you can't afford Mike Kaufman anymore, CD6. You may like that guy. He may have done what you wanted. But if you want a check on the president, you need a Democratic majority in at least one chamber of Congress. And I'm going to help give you that. And it looks, looking at those vote totals, like that message, a lot of people agreed with it. So let's talk now about state politics. What do you guys think this is going to look like? Democrats have so much power. What are they going to do with it? Well, out of 112, which was the 2,500-foot setback, again, that didn't pass. But I heard so much chatter, both from environmental groups and concerns from oil and gas industry, that something is going to be pushed through the state legislature. There's a potential that this could end up on the governor's desk. And I think that's going to put Jared Polison, who's a Democrat as well, into a pretty tight spot. I would say there are a couple of other things that we've seen in the legislature in recent years that could not get make it past the Republican Senate that are almost starting to come back. One is a paid family leave program. This is very popular um, with Democrats, but it would create a giant new state program where they're collecting it out of people's paychecks and then disbursing it. That's a lot of new state jobs. That is a very big dollar amount. So that's a very ambitious thing that that I think Democrats are going to want to come back and disbursing it just to make it clear what this policy would do to people who are taking time off to take care of a child or a sick relative. Exactly. If you work for a company that's large enough to give you family medical leave, but they don't pay for your time off, you would be able to apply into this program Mm -hmm. to get some part of your lost income refunded when you're having a baby or adopting or taking care of a sick relative or going through your own serious illness. Another thing that I think is going to be a big debate at the legislature is a red flag gun law gun violence restraining order law. There was one last session. The one Republican who was really behind it lost his seat on Tuesday night to a major gun control activist, Tom Sullivan, the father of an Aurora shooting victim. That bill, which would let judges temporarily seize guns from uh, people deemed to be a danger, I really don't see how Democrats don't bring that bill back. And that's where I think you could see some backlash from Republicans. I mean, we saw the recalls that happened. I'm also thinking of just rural Colorado again. I remember covering Hickenlooper's sort of apology tour to rural Colorado. I remember covering those 2013 gun bills. I remember because of those gun bills, there was so much frustration. But also we saw in Weld County there was a secessionist movement, just raw frustration against democratically controlled state house and senate. Ben, you're you're our business reporter. What do you think Colorado's business community is thinking about this new Democratic legislature? Like, what are they looking for now? I, I think they're bracing for it. They give to both sides. Businesses that give mostly to Republicans also give a certain amount to Democrats as well. So they have hedged their bets a little bit. But they're also trying to identify business-friendly Democrats in the state legislature who they think could be some backstop on some of the measures that will come out of the legislature. And I, and I do want to talk about Jared Polis, because right after his victory, I think the big story we all saw was first gay man elected governor, which is actually some really careful wordsmithing. There have been uh, other gay governors in other states, but not a first gay man elected governor. Openly gay man. That's Openly. The, the other piece of parsing. Yes. Wow. You can never assume about history. A lot of qualifiers. A lot of qualifiers. Wow. Okay. So. What I was wondering, Megan, is like, do you think his sexual identity played into this race at all? No, and I think that's the really surprising thing. I actually tweeted out uh, in a daze on Wednesday morning that I wondered how many people saw those headlines and went, wait, he's gay? 
And then people tweeted back to me that, in fact, they had had that experience. Ben, your wife had that experience. She was genuinely shocked that he was gay well, after I, after the election was over. I also just think of the mailer that I got to live in Boulder County, and the mailer was of his family, his husband, his two kids. And man, you just think about how far we've come since the early 2000s. I, I think there's a very interesting point to be made here that Walker Stapleton, clearly his campaign saw no upside in bringing up Jared Polis's sexual orientation. But even beyond that, usually those kinds of attacks are left to the dark money groups. And while I understand there were some pretty offensive things in a few very targeted places, broadly, the dark money groups that were supporting Walker Stapleton did not bring it up. I actually very carefully read a press release about Polis and the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision. I was sure there was going to be some little needle in there. Even <laughs> even attacking him on a gay rights issue, it was not mentioned. And Ben, you and I, we did a whole purplish episode about Jared Polis's past. And I, I think we found that his sexual orientation is like long down on the list of interesting things about him. I mean, this was a guy who had made millions of dollars, got into politics when he was 25, and really worked to turn Colorado into much more of a blue state. And there was a book written about that that you and I talked about called The Blueprint, uh, and Polis was one of the people who, who forged that blueprint. Do you think this was the culmination of his plan? I mean, he said he's said for a long time he wanted to be governor. The question is, like, did he do something really innovative this election cycle like he did in 2004? And I don't think so. I don't think this was a major leap in strategy or technology or tactics. He spent a lot of money. The demographics favored him and he won and he helped to drag uh, down ballot races up with him. And I, and I want to just end, since this podcast has been really focused on talking about Colorado's democracy, uh, on who voted, right? Like, who were the voters this year? Have you guys had a chance to look at some of the turnout numbers? I have. I've been a little obsessed with them. And there is one storyline that I don't think we know what it means yet, but holy mackerel unaffiliated voters, like, wow, uh, they voted in greater numbers than Republicans or Democrats. And that has not happened before in this state. Now, it is the fastest growing segment of the electorate. We've been saying that cycle after cycle. But usually they don't turn out as much. The idea is if you don't affiliate with a party, you're maybe not as involved in politics. Boy, that was not true this year. One of the things I have sort of been watching is what are the primary issues driving people to the polls? And I was watching climate change. How does that factor into people's decisions? But I'm always surprised with how uh, how few voters really name climate change as their number one issue. It's usually something like healthcare education, something that has a very direct connection to their lives. Female voters came out in force in Colorado, and maybe that's the Trump effect to some degree. Right. And then and I think the trend that I just want to mention is turnout overall. We saw 2.5 million people vote in this midterm. That is 500,000 more people than voted in the last midterms and nearly up to what we saw in 2016 when 2.8 million people voted in Colorado. This was nearly a presidential election year, right? That's what turnout looked like in this state, not a midterm year. But what about people who've moved to this state? I mean, how many people have moved here? And I don't know. The, that, that's the population is up. So we're still waiting on a little bit of the actual 
you know, percentage turnout numbers, but it looks like it's around 60%, which is really high for a midterm year as well. But yeah, you're right. Raw numbers are not percentage turnout. Well, I think everything mitigated towards turnout. You had people who are opposed to the president who wanted to get their first chance to vote against him, essentially. You had people supporting the president who wanted to definitely make it known that they were going to be out for him. You had contentious issues on the ballot, which drives turnout. You had a governor's race, which even though it didn't end up being close, was close enough that that kind of drove turnout. And we still have, as you also have talked about on Purplish, a very easy system to access. So all the pieces were in place for a high turnout election. All right, guys, I think we should leave it there. Thank you all so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Sam. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll look at one more voter trend that we saw in the midterm elections, a huge surge of young voters submitting ballots in Colorado. Colorado Public Radio's new email newsletter is called The Lookouts. It's a daily rundown of top stories, the best reporting from CPR News and other Colorado outlets, and the most compelling conversations from Colorado Matters. Sign up to get a smart, sometimes funny take on your daily news briefing, delivered directly to your inbox Monday through Friday. All it takes is a quick read to keep you informed and connected to Colorado news. Sign up to get the lookouts in your inbox. Subscribe at CPR.org. And know that if you like what you've been hearing on Purplish, members make everything Colorado Public Radio does possible. Find out how to become an Evergreen partner at CPR.org. You're back with Purplish, a show about Colorado's democracy. I'm Sam Brash with a cold uninformed, lazy, apathetic. Those are just some of the jabs usually aimed at young voters after a midterm. That doesn't appear to be the case this year, especially in Colorado. According to early turnout data, the youth vote was way up compared to the last midterm. In fact, voters under 34 were almost the biggest voting block, second only to voters over 65. So heads up, geezers. Us youngins are a force to be reckoned with. Many of the newest members of CPR's news team were out at drop boxes and polling stations talking to voters and trying to figure out what got them to the polls, especially young voters. Haley Sanchez and Joella Bauman are CPR's news fellows, and Natalia Navarro is our morning GA reporter. Hey, guys. Hello. So catch me up. Where were each of you on Election Day? I was in Arapahoe County, Douglas County, suburban Denver. Okay. I was all over. I started down in Greenwood Village, went up to downtown Denver, and then south to the Lone Tree area. Okay. And I was in Colorado Springs. Where are you from, right? Yes. All right, great. (laughs) So, Haley, let's start with you. Um, One trend we've been hearing a lot about is, like we've said, this big boost in the youth voter turnout in Colorado. It was already high. This year it appears to be even higher. And you were in one of the reddest parts of uh, Colorado, El Paso County. Did you run into young voters there? Actually, I only ran into one guy. (laughs) His name was Matt Flaherty, and he's 21. He's studying political science at UCCS. The University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Okay. Yes. Um, And he was dropping his ballot off at the mall with his dad. Uh And I asked him, you know, where are your friends at? Where are the young voters? I don't really know what my friends are thinking about for this election. I know uh, they're a little bit more conservative than I am, (laughs) which is totally fine, you know. But uh, yeah, I know. I don't know if they're voting. I hope they. I hope they are. They haven't really told me about that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I know I am. I know I always have and always will. 
Okay, so he couldn't really account for his friends, but he said they're a little bit more conservative than he is. Did he tell you about the issues he cares about? Yes, um, he did say that he voted in support of Prop 112, which were the oil and gas setbacks Mm -hmm. that ultimately failed. Right. He wanted to see more clean energy being used. Beyond that, he didn't really want to be associated with any party. Generally, I do see myself aligning with more democratic ideals, you know. But that does not mean I'm beholden to, like, the party itself because, you know, the party itself has their own narrative and their own agenda. And sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't. But I don't like to say, like, you know, I am democratic because it kind of puts my name on what they do. And, you know, it's like almost guilt by association if they do something wrong. Yeah, so this is something that we've kind of seen with young voters this year. They're a little bit hesitant about which side and which party to associate with. They don't really like President Trump, but they don't want to pick one or the other. They want to pick one party or the other. Right. Huh. Natalia, did, did you run into any young voters? I ran into a few, like first-time voter, 19-year-old Nikki Silva. She couldn't vote in the last election, and she was just really excited to have her voice finally be heard. Yeah, I've been wanting to vote for a while just because I've never done it. I turned 19 this year. I didn't do it last year, so I figured due to the last election, yeah, I kind of want to have more say in what goes on. She was not happy with how the last election played out, and she couldn't vote at that time. So she turned out this time to sort of put on the brakes uh, for the for the National Republican Party. Yeah, that's something I found, too. I ran into a couple young women at Rangeview High School, Deja Lofton and Lyric Finley. Great name. And they didn't really know that the election was happening until a few days ago. Huh. And I asked them if they'd studied up on the issues in Colorado. Um, not really, but... I hope to get a little bit more yeah, educated it, on it yeah. to okay. understand fully. They said what really brought them out was helping to remove Trump from office. I mean, there's a lot of things that are wrong. There's just, like, a lot of stuff that's going on as far as, like, in the system and, like, stuff like that. But I know that this vote is, like, not specifically for, like, Donald Trump, but just, like, people in office. We can get people out of the office, and eventually we can get Donald Trump out of the office. So I would say pretty much just that. The other thing that I did hear from both of them was that this is our civic duty and we have to vote. Okay, so like everybody told them to get to the polls and they had to do it. Yeah. All right. Did you run into any young voters who lean more to the right guys or or support the president? I did. So I met an 18-year-old in Highlands Ranch, still in high school. His name's Brendan O'Keefe. And I straight up asked him if he supports the president. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd like to maintain the, you know... Republican majority. I'm not personally affiliated with any party, but I tend to, I'm a, I consider myself to be conservative. So guys, among all the young voters you ran into, did they lean more to the left? Did they lean more to the center or more to the right? For me, most of the people I talked to were leaning left. And I think that's more to do with conservatives' views of the news media. Um, They were really hesitant to talk to me, especially in Douglas County. They were very cagey about talking to a reporter. Um, But I think it has more to do with that than uh, the number of people at the polls. I found the same thing in Douglas County. I ran into Republicans who said they just didn't want to go on record with a reporter. Do you think they didn't want to talk to you because they weren't pumped about the election? Was that part of it? I don't think it is. I think it is more about uh, the views of the media. Those people seem to be very distrustful of us. Um, And it did seem like there were a lot of Republicans who would talk to me and then decide not to let me use their name on air. So we all are young people. What do you each of you think really turned out young people in Colorado this time around from from talking to people and just from your own lives? What do you think the, the big motivators were? 
I think it was a lot about the issues, and this was a chance for young people to come out and kind of change the direction of the country to stop Trump's administration, which a lot of people, young people, have said that they're not very happy about. I think a lot of that rhetoric from celebrities and, and various older people in our in our world of get out to vote, it's your civic duty, I think that really sunk in with a lot of the young women that I talked to who either it was their first time voting and they were excited about it, or they've always voted in midterm elections and presidential elections alike. Sort of the like Taylor Swift effect, right? Exactly. (laughs) What do you think, Joella? Um, Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I also think that there were a lot of chances to put millennials and LGBTQ community women into office, not just in the state, but nationally. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. (laughs) Glad to be here. Natalia Navarro is CPR's Morning General Assignment reporter. Joella Bauman and Haley Sanchez are CPR's news fellows. They spent Election Day out of the polls talking to young voters. <coughs> All right. Why don't you just start out like introducing yourself again? Sure. Uh, my name is Ben Brash. Uh, you may know me from such episodes as the promo that preceded the first episode of this show. <laughs> Right, and you're my little brother. We also live together. And since you were in that first promo, we figured yeah, we'd bring you back for this, the, the very end of uh, this series, right? So how do you think we should end it? Easy, Sam. I'm going to ask the questions because not only does it sound like you have a cold, it sounds like your cold got a cold. Okay, fair. What's, what's the question? Okay, first question. This is an important one. Why wasn't I more included in this podcast? (laughs) I can't just always engage in, like, naked nepotism. Sam, I'm the common man. I'm the guy you're supposed to be making this podcast for. Yeah, I know that, but you're also my brother. You're a common man who's also my brother. And you're not that much of, like, a commoner. I'm the commoner. I'm the one who wants things from my government. Why can't my voice be heard? Okay, your your voice is being heard. What do you want to know? Thank you. Okay. Real question. Colorado, great democracy or the greatest democracy? (laughs) Seriously? Yeah, that's my question. (laughs) Okay, it's probably not the greatest democracy. Okay, wrong answer, but why not? I mean, Colorado is a state government that's flawed probably like every single other state government. It'd be pretty outlandish for me to say that it's the greatest democracy on the planet. You know, I, I don't think I can go that far, but I was encouraged by a lot of things that I learned by producing this podcast. What encourages you about this? Uh, well, in terms of about Colorado's democracy, um, I think that we talked about a lot of things that we found really encouraging, right? It's really easy to vote in Colorado. That's something that I think everybody here should be really proud of. I mean, we heard all these horror stories from Georgia and Florida. And, you know, so far, it seems like our elections pretty much went off without a hitch. I mean, we should give ourselves a big pat on the back for that. Uh, I mean, there's other things about the legislature that I've found work really well. And I think the other thing is I've been just like really encouraged by the response to this podcast. I mean, we deliberately steered away from the flashier topics when it comes to politics. We told stories about how things work. We told stories about how people found common ground on things like gerrymandering and felon voting rights. And and people got into it. So that's it for Purplish. Or that's it-ish. I'd say that's that's it-ish. Good. Okay, go to bed, Sam. 
I got the rest of it. All right, really quick. Let me just close it out. Uh, Purplish is a production of members. Sam, I said I got this. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn more about becoming a CPR member or join at CPR.org. This episode was produced by my sickly but loving brother, Sam Brash, with help from pretty much the entire CPR newsroom. The theme music was by Brad Turner. Additional music by Poddington Bear. I hope Poddington Bear is both a music producer and the subject of at least one children's book. Okay, audio production by John Pino. And this episode of Purplish, like every episode of Purplish, was edited by my close and personal friend, Megan Verley. Verley? Verley. Verley. Peace out, everyone.